0: Well, today is indeed a special Lord's Day. As Gary shared with us, we will have our monthly communion meeting where we will share the bread and the cup to remember Christ's atoning work on the cross. We invite all the believers to join us. And if you are a first-time visitor, please talk to our welcoming ministry. We would like to hear your testimony and your clear profession of faith in Christ. And as a believer, we would warmly welcome you, extend the right hand of fellowship, and welcome you to our communion service to worship our Lord together as a body of believers. Also, with our retreat coming up, we'll have a baptism service at our retreat. And if you are a believer, if you recently trusted in Christ, and there are several of you out there and would like to be baptized, also please talk to our welcoming ministry. Um, I think uh, Mr. Tom Furco will be teaching a baptism session soon. Go over um, the New Testament teaching on baptism and formally um, baptize you at our next retreat. Well, through our text this morning, First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Our last part in a four-part series on eldership first part was God's call to all men of Cornerstone, a noble aspiration. That if you are a man, and if you are a Christian, then one of your life ambitions is to strive to the office of eldership. It says here that if you desire this, it is a colossal aspiration, a beautiful, noble, a good ambition. And therefore, as a Christian, seeking to please God, your heart would be to aspire to this. How does one aspire? Our second part of the study was through godly character. 14 requirements, descriptions. Here, Paul, with surgical precision, paints a picture of a godly man. And this is how we aspire through godly character. And then last week, we studied really the second focal point of the man's heart. First, is himself. Second, is to his own family. He must be a faithful manager of his own household. Well, today we're going to conclude with Christian service. Christian service, which is being a teacher of God's Word. To his own heart, to his own family, to his own church, and to the world. Man of God is a faithful teacher. He's an expositor. He's a prophet. He's a herald, a proclaimer of God's Word to his own heart, to his own family, to his own church, and to this world. And you know, through our study in 1 Timothy 3, I think as a church, we are seeing firsthand the great importance of quality leadership in the church Today, I don't believe you can stress enough the importance of qualified and effective leadership for the health of a church. The one overarching need, the greatest significant need of any church is godly men, godly leaders. Pastor William Sangster is quoted as saying, The church is painfully in need of leaders. I wait to hear a voice and yet no voice comes. You know, that, that quote really articulates the heart of the elders of this church. For us, the pressing need, the grinding need, the significant need of our church is not a building. not more money. It's not more programs or more ministries. For us, The heart-wrenching imperative of our church is godly men, godly leaders will serve the church in that way. Oswald Sanders says in his book, Spiritual Leadership, the overriding need of the church is godly leaders. The church has always prospered most when it has been blessed with strong and spiritual leaders. Therefore, raising such leaders is a major priority of our church. Of our church. And we believe that it is the call upon every Christian man to be a leader. That is God's call to each man. Christian men are the ordained leaders by God. In the home, in the church, in the community, and in the world. And this is the reason for the curse of our nation. This is the reason for the calamity, the moral calamity that exists in the world today because of weak men. Weak, absent, and insecure men. Weak husbands, passive fathers, you would agree, have decimated the family today. And likewise, passive, invisible, hollow men have severely weakened the church You know, at some point, this intergenerational cycle must be stopped. At some point, men must step up and say, enough. We can't allow this this compromise to continue. We can't allow our families to continue to be weakened. We can't allow the moral fabric of our society to be destroyed. We can't allow our churches to be devastated in such a way At some point, men must step up and say, no more. It will stop with me. I will do all that I can within my power to stop this in my life, in my family, and in my church. Therefore, as a Christian man, I will tell you, you do not have an option of leadership. You do not. By being born a man, God is sovereignly chose you to be a leader. We see this in the ministry of Christ. The way Christ related to women was was radical during His time. You see Him speaking to women in public, going against cultural norms and speaking to a woman, not less a Samaritan woman, not less a woman who's been divorced five times, speaking to her publicly. He did not conform to His world. No, he was transformed by the Word of God in his mind perfectly. Therefore, he related to women with dignity and integrity and honor. He condemned the sin of lust in the heart of men. He focused on our hearts rather than avoiding women. He did not propose uh, putting women in burkas, right? Separating them from society as an answer to lust. No, he condemned the lust that exists in the heart of man. He accorded women with dignity. He used women in illustrations, as heroines in his parables. And so we, we we know through Scripture that our Lord had a high view of women and our Lord could have appointed six women and six men as apostles, as leaders for the church. But he did not. Our Lord chose 12 men. Not only as leaders, the Bible is clear. That it is the man's responsibility to provide and protect his family and community. John Piper wrote, It is the essential to manhood is a responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect one's wife. You see that way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. You see the work given to Adam, it was to till the land. And what was Eve's responsibility? It was to take care of the children. In Proverbs, it esteems the wife, the mother's role in the home. At the same time, it esteems the father's responsibility to work and not to be lazy, to be diligent out in the field. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. Through that contextual study, it is clear, Paul is speaking about a man. Not if anyone, if any man does not provide for his family. If he does not provide for his relatives, he has denied the Christian faith. In fact, he is worse than an unbeliever. It is better to be a non-Christian who provides for his family than to be a Christian man and not provide for his family. That's Paul's argument. In 1 Timothy 5, 9-11, through Paul talks about widows in the church and how the church's responsibility is to provide and care for widows. He makes no mention of widowers. If you're a man and your wife passes away, Keep working, right? What are you doing? Get back to work. Provide for your life, for your children, for your extended family. But if you are a widow, it's the church's responsibility to care for her. Not only for leadership, not only for provision, but it is the man's responsibility to protect. Joshua 1.14 declares it clearly, that it is men who are to go off to war. The Old Testament considers it shameful when women go off to war to protect the men. The responsibility of protection is given to the men. Joshua 14, Your wives, your children, and your livestock stay in the land that Moses gave to you. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. (coughs) Nehemiah 4.13 Bible says men are to fight for their homes, for their wives and children. It does not say women are to fight for their husbands. Nahum Prophet Nahum three thirteen Prophet declares that it is shameful, is a dis- disgrace when soldiers are women. He says, Look at your troops. They are all women. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed your city. Nowhere does the Bible call the wives to provide, to lead, and protect the family. And I think furthermore, it is evidence for the internal testimony of our heart. I mean, if you are a man, there is something within you. Even from youth to play with a sword. Right? You don't want to play with Barbie dolls. You don't want to play... You know, with a, with a you know, plastic kitchen and, and, and I don't know, you know, take care of, change diapers with a doll. I mean, that, that's not innate in men. Innately, you want to take out a sword and, and, and protect someone, protect something. I was reading about the Eisenhower brothers, how the four men, and they just fought all the time, physically, violently, and they grew in their love for one another through physical violence. That's innate in boys, innate in men. And likewise with women, where their heart gravitates to nurturing, to caring, to helping, to supporting, to to caring for children, to serving other men. And and they, they want, they seek security and the protection of men as well. So I think it is clear from scripture, it's clear from experience The men are the leaders, the protectors, the providers, the God-ordained leaders of the family and the church. The question is, will you be a good leader? That's the question. The question is not, are you a leader? The question is, will you be a godly leader or an ungodly leader? Two options. You're You're either one or the other. There is no middle ground. Right. How can you be a godly leader? We've gone through three criteria thus far. Number one, you've got to have a desire. you got to have this epithemia, this lust for responsibility, this lust for leadership, this lust for accountability, saying, it's on me. I'll, I'll take it on my shoulders. right? I'll take care of my life. I'm not going to be dependent on anyone. I'm not going to be a parasite to anyone. I'll take ownership of my life. I'll take ownership of my family. I'll take responsibility for our church. That desire must be there. That's the first criteria. Second is character. Fourteen traits outlined by Paul. Above reproach. I mean, we went through one by one two weeks ago. Thirdly, commitment to one's own family. That's the first mini church. Right? I mean, we repeat this quote, model again and again. Strong churches are built by strong families. And we need each man to take care of his own family. And then final one. This is the one, only one, that talks about one's skill. One's ability. This is the fourth criteria for godly leadership. It's the ability to teach the Word of God. The ability to teach the Word of God. To be a godly leader, you only need one skill. One ability. And that's to be able to teach the Word of God. You don't need to be athletic. Athletic. not about physical strength. Not about dynamic personality. It is not having a degree. It's just one thing. Only one skill. Look at verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober minded. <clears throat> Self controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. And you find those three words. Able to teach. The overseer must be able to teach suddenly in the middle of a series of moral qualities. In verse 2, a single functional qualification is mentioned. This is the only qualification that relates specifically to a man's ability, to a man's skill, giftedness, function. It follows... That pastors are essentially teachers. And likewise, men ought to aspire and grow in teaching the Word of God as well. It tells us that the elder must be a man who is able to instruct, explain, and proclaim the Scriptures. This describes a man. He possesses everything necessary for teaching. Meaning, he is a clear thinker, an able memory, He strives a coherent speech. And he possesses, and he strives to have an inexhaustible discipline to study the Word of God. It also includes the willingness and the inclination to teach others. Where he will lead, not by brute force. He will lead his family, he will lead others, not by intimidation. He won't use worldly methods secular um, uh, persuasions to lead others. No, he has a single weapon teaching the Word of God for the integrity of his life. The chosen weapon in the hands of a a man of God. And by using the Word of God, he will shepherd his wife, shepherd his children, shepherd others in the church to godliness, to growth, and to maturity according to the image of Christ. This word... This phrase appears only here and in Second 2 Timothy two twenty four Paul says again the Lord's bond servant, the voluntary servant of Christ, must not be quarrelsome, he must be kind to all, and he must be able to teach. So all men, we must aspire to this. And the elders, they must exemplify this. Pastors must exemplify the skill of being clear, cogent, faithful, articulators of the Word of God. But the sad tragedy today is that many pastors, many elders have forsaken the pulpit for programs. I contend the major reason for the decline of the Christian church in America today is the decline in Biblical preaching. Churches today are weak. They're impotent. They're powerless. Because its leaders do not teach the Word of God. A Puritan pastor, this is what he said about pastoral ministry. He said pastoral ministry is not simply making social calls. The pastoral work is primarily Preaching. We sometimes hear it said of a minister. He is a good pastor, but he cannot preach. That sentence, he says, is self-contradictory. No man can be a man. No man can be a pastor, a godly man who cannot preach. Any more than a man can be a good shepherd who fails to feed his flock. How many times have you heard that? He's a good pastor, but man, he cannot preach to save his own life right, as soon as he opens the Bible, I'm just entering REM sleep, you know, I need to bring a, a what they call a Bible pillow, right, leather on one side, padding on the other, as soon as the preacher opens his mouth and kind of lay my head on my padding on my Bible, the sentence is indeed self-contradictory, because it goes against the biblical qualification of what it means to be a pastor, Homer Kant says that any man who shows himself incapable of successfully teaching others is not qualified for eldership. Among the countless responsibilities given to an elder, that of preaching, that of teaching, stands head and shoulders above the rest in, import, in, in importance. Right. Our Lord is unconcerned about a man's personality. Really key issue is not his administrative skills, his talents, even his zeal is secondary to this one requirement, to be a skillful instructor of the Word of God. Amen. If you want to lead your own life, if you want to shepherd your own heart well, your I mean, hearts are full of sin, right? desperately sick, who can understand it? Jeremiah 79, you need to be it's the powerful biblical preacher that will shepherd your own heart. And Christianity flows from your heart. And who's going to shepherd your heart? We try, but we're with you. Three hours a week at most. You're with yourself every day, 24-7. You need to shepherd your own heart. You need to shepherd your family. You need to be the influencer at work, influencing community. So if you are a man, you need to be today. No, you need to be like yesterday, aspiring to be an able teacher. Well, we'll spend the rest of our time answering this question, what are the marks of a skillful teacher? What are the marks of a skillful teacher? These are marks that all of us are to pursue in our lives, and our fo- focus this morning is our men, but these are marks for, for everyone, for, especially for women. We interviewed nine members yesterday, from 8 o'clock till noon. I mean, it was great. It was great, but it was intense, right? Nine members. It's back to back to back. Everyone's early. Usually, some people come late, so we have a break time. Bob and I can relax, you know, have some coffee and chat. But they're all just right there, right? So no break for us. We're amazed to find that I think at least three, they were saved by their mom. How would you get saved? Who taught you the gospel? Who shared with you these These great truths. Who who was your greatest spiritual influence? My mom. My mother. Ever since I can remember, my mom. So it's imperative in a family context for the mom to be a skillful teacher. I mean the focus is men, but it's for every Christian. Four marks. Marks that all of us must pursue. First mark. He must be a man who knows the priority of the teaching ministry. He must be a man who knows the priority, the importance of this teaching ministry. He must be a man who knows that this is his main work. Right? That his main ministry is to preach and teach the Word of God. That as an elder, the hard work is digging the text having it flushed out in his heart and his life, and to communicate it with passion and boldness to the church. Elder is a man who is first and foremost called to preach the word of God. You know, many churches have elders, but they behave like they are in some kind of board of directors. They are paper pushers. They sit behind desks, and they make decisions that impact the life of the church, but they never once stand behind the pulpit... They don't know what it is like to stand before dying men as a dying man preaching the Word of God. They don't know the humiliating experience of proclaiming truth and knowing that the Word of God cuts both ways. And that as a sinful man he falls short behind the standards that he's proclaimed to the church that instant. If an elder is not preaching, if an elder is not teaching, then in my book, He is not an elder. No way. An elder is immersed in the ministry of teaching and preaching. Whether in a pulpit, whether in a small group, whether one-to-one, that is his main work. He lives to teach the Word of God, to expound the glorious truths of Scripture. That is his main priority. And we see that emphasis in the life of Paul. Paul said in Romans 1.15, I am obligated. I have a debt I need to repay to all men, Greeks and Jews. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul had a clear mission statement. He knew clearly the priorities of his life and he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. 1 Corinthians 9.16, that's why he said, Woe to me. I, am con- I should be condemned. I should be judged if I do not preach the gospel. He did not wait to the end of his life to stress this importance. It was a clear theme, a constant, cogent theme throughout his life. And he makes it clear to the young leaders of Timothy and Titus. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.11, Timothy, command and teach these things. 1 Timothy 4.3, Until I come, devote yourself through preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 6:2, these are the things you are to teach and urge to them. 2 Timothy 4:2, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word, herald the word of God. Prophets have come and they have revealed the word of God. Timothy, now your job is to be a prophet for your generation. Take the word that was spoken and take ownership of it and preach it again. Make it personal. Preach the word in season and out of season. This emphasis is not unique to Paul. It runs throughout the New Testament. Therefore, the first mark of a skillful teacher is that he knows the primacy of the ministry of teaching. And because he knows this, Mark 2, he devotes himself to the hard work of studying Scripture. Second Mark, he devotes himself. He has committed himself to the hard work of studying the Bible. To be an an able teacher, there is a multitude of preparation work that needs to be done. So, I mean, it's like the whole illustration, right? I mean, you go to an NBA game and everybody plays hard. And the coach says some like, you know, players are not committed. Well, what do you mean, coach? I saw the same game you did. They're hustling all out. Well, you know, a mark of a committed athlete is not what he does on the court. It's what he does off the court, right? The coach is not everybody plays hard. And there's like 20,000 people watching you. If you're broadcast nationwide on Channel 7 on ESPN, if you're going to be posterized on ESPN highlights, I mean, you're going to play hard. No one's you know, um, complacent on, on the game day. But the coach looks at how you practice. The coach looks at your diet. The coach looks at your mindset off the court. And that shows your commitment to the game. Commitment to be an excellent athlete. Well, likewise, an able teacher. I mean, right? The commitment is not, okay, you know, I'll teach on Sundays or I'll lead a small group. The commitment is outside of that commitment. Committing yourself to the hard work of studying the scriptures. In 1979, Billy Graham, speaking to about 600 pastors in London, He said that he had only one regret in his life. If he were to to do his ministry again, he would change only one thing. And people were startled. They They were aghast. What could he possibly mean? He said he would study three times as much as he had done. He would take fewer engagements. and He would study more. He said, quote, I've preached too much and I studied too little. Spurgeon said if he had only five years to minister in the church, he would study for three and preach for two. I would confess the reason we are prone to avoid studying the Bible is because it is by far the most challenging and demanding aspect of ministry. Without question, the incessant discipline of study is a mammoth task. You know, I hope by the end of the sermon, each man will commit to being an able teacher. But I I want you guys to know what you're committing to. Not a blind commitment, but a sober, calculated commitment. Once you commit to know the Bible, once you commit to being a teacher of the Bible, you have committed yourself to relentless and careful discipline. You have committed yourself to week in and week out, day in and day out, to be a detailed student of the Word of God. Committed to the challenge of interpreting the text, to put that text in the theological context, in the literal context, to exegete in the original languages. To read commentaries that explain the text. Come to your own conclusion. Have it flushed out in your own life. Obedience to it. Find the things in the world to give it its impact and clarity. You're committed to teach that, preach that, articulately and passionately to the people around you. To do that day in and day out, week after week, is a formidable task takes exhausting effort it takes great amount of sacrifice and so because it is so difficult that is the reason for so many poor sermons in churches today christian counselor jay adams says that he is convinced that good preaching demands hard work i am convinced that the basic reason for poor preaching is the failure of pastors to spend adequate time and energy and preparation. In Q&A, John MacArthur was asked, Pastor John, what do you see as the greatest threat that may undermine a man's ministry in the church? The greatest threat. And his answer was surprising. It was not immorality. It was not love for money or love for power. It wasn't false teaching His answer was mundane. His answer was laziness. The greatest threat to a man's life, man's ministry, is laziness. He said, quote, Many men do not know how to work hard. They know how to stay busy doing a number of things. But they do not know how to focus with discipline on the main thing diligence, and discipline in the Scripture. The result is often a failure to attend to the priorities in the ministry. A lot of activity happens at a shallow level, but the hard work of intense study of the Word and prayer are often not done well." Quote. So for men, there is no place for laziness in our lives because of our role as leaders because of the commission that God has given us to be able teachers. Studying the scriptures is not about lack of time. It is not because I'm too busy. I lie to myself. It's not. If you tell yourself that, well, let me give you some news. You're lying to yourself too. It is not about IQ either. It is what Priolo said. It's about DQ desire quotient. All right. If you desire it, you'll make time for it. You'll wake up early for it. You'll stay up late for it. All right. You'll sacrifice anything and everything if you have the desire. Knowledge of Scripture is a matter of DQ. That is a clear mark of a skillful teacher. He has discipline in his skillful, in his study habits. Because he has a high view of the Word of God, he has committed himself to a serious study of Scripture. He says no to many permissible things in this world. He says no to certain hobbies that would take up too much time. He says no to certain entertainment choices because he knows it's not good for his heart. It would distract him. He says no to many activities because he has said a greater yes to the Word of God. Third mark. Because he's a student of the Word of God. Number three, he has a deep knowledge and understanding of Scripture. The third mark of a skillful teacher is his deep understanding of the Word of God. Deep understanding of doctrine and theology. You know, we don't have to look further than... Paul's example to see the standard set for us in this area. Apostle Paul was a man whose mind was saturated with the Word of God. His great intellect was immersed and bathed with the truth of God's Word. You consider the book of Romans, for example, and Paul speaks with great competence about Abraham. He understood the relationship between grace and law, between flesh and spirit. In teaching about these grandiose truths, he draws upon the writings of Moses, Hosea, Isaiah, David, demonstrating particular familiarity with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. He effortlessly quotes from the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, Malachi, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. His knowledge and ability to teach God's Word was impeccable. Apostle Paul was a man of one book, and that book was the Bible. He was a master of the Bible, and the Bible in his hands became for him the chosen weapon of God to save the lost and sanctify the saints. John Stott says, it is not enough for a man to skim through a few verses in daily Bible reading, nor to study a passage only when he has to preach from it. No, We must daily soak ourselves in the Word of God. Spurgeon wrote, It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is biblene and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. His knowledge of the Bible must be comprehensive D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in Preaching and Preachers, I would say that all preachers must read through the Bible in its entirety at least once a year. That should be the minimum of the pastor's reading. Spurgeon, beg this church, be masters of one thing. Be masters of your Bible. That is the third mark. Well, what a Awesome picture of a godly man. He knows this. He knows the importance of the teaching ministry. Therefore, he has committed himself. If I do one thing in life, I'm going to know the Bible. I'm going to study the scriptures. And because of that, he has a growing knowledge and understanding of scripture. He has memorized large portions of the Bible. He has read many Christian um, uh, thinkers, uh, classic Christian books. He knows deep theology. He knows sound doctrine. The final mark. And because of these things, he is a man of courage and conviction. An able teacher is a man of courage and conviction. First of all, courage. He must be a man of strong intestinal fortitude must be a man of guts. Guts of steel. I mean, just a weak, cowardly, man-pleasing man need not apply. Philip Brooks, in his 1877 Yale lecture, said, Courage is the indispensable prerequisite of any true ministry. If you are afraid of men and you are a slave to their opinions, go and do something else. Go and make shoes to fit them. Go even and paint pictures which you know are bad but which will suit their bad taste. But do not keep on all your life preaching sermons which shall not say what God sent you to declare but what they hired you to say. You must be courageous. The pastor presiding over the funeral of John Knox said of him, Here lies a man Who never feared the face of man. The courage of men in church history like Athanasius, Knox, John Hus, Luther, Edwards are well known. And there is an urgent need for courageous teachers of the Word of God today. Men who will confront their wives. Men who will be courageous, right? Wear the pants. and and apply the Word of God in their own families. Who will raise their children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. Men who will stand in the church and declare the truth. Men who will put friendships on the line, relationships on the line because of the Word of God. Men who will put jobs on the line. At the personal cost, things on the line for the Word of God. He must be a man of strength and vigor. And secondly, he must also be a man of conviction. A man of conviction. A man convinced. A man convicted of the power of God's Word. Titus 1 9 says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. The idea is he must cling to. He must hold tightly to the Word of God. That same word is used in Luke 16, 13 for devoted. It means a strong affection to the Word of God. A personal devotion. It is to love Scripture. It is to adhere to it. It it involves a commitment in the deepest level. It is not enough to know Scripture. It is not enough to simply agree with doctrine, agree with theology. It means to have a personal zeal, personal passion a personal conviction of the Word of God. It demands that he must be a man who is deeply committed to the Bible's inspiration, to its inerrancy, its authority, its sufficiency. It is the firm belief that the Word of God alone has the power to save the lost. The Word of God alone has the power to sanctify the saints. It's the conviction that the Word of God contains all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the understanding that we need to live out our Christian lives. We don't need anything in this world to add to our faith. The Word of God is sufficient for us. Luther understood this. And we need to sing this hymn soon, Leo. Right? Mighty Fortress. Come on, brother, we need to sing this. It's that one verse. The Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word of God. That's awesome. Right? One word of Scripture will cause the demise of our enemy. What a great honor it is to be man, is it not? What a privilege of this stewardship, this commission. What an honor it is just to be a man. That we're able to serve our wives, serve our children, our church, community, and this world. And you know what? I rejoice that we have such men in our body. We have men like this that we don't have to look look beyond our church for such examples. We have men right here who are growing in these marks. It is our prayer that God will grow continually such men in our body that you will be such a man as this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I don't understand when Christians are bored where Christians uh, immerse themselves in uh, earthly, secular distractions and endeavors, when You've given us such a great, life-consuming commission to know Your Word and to teach it to this world, to our families, and to our church. We pray, Lord, that through our study in 1 Timothy 3 this morning, that each believer here that our mind was renewed, that we were reminded of of our future hope and what we need to do until the arrival of Christ. It is, again, our, our heartfelt prayer, God, that God be men. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we sow, we water, but, co- but God, You cause the growth. Or we pray that the Holy Spirit would would stir and place in each man's heart this desire and that you would cause growth and you would raise up men who will lead in various capacities, uh, various roles, various degrees of leadership. But they will do one thing. They will know Scripture. They will be a man of God's Word. They will be a teacher, a prophet, a proclaimer of your truth. Lord, may that be done in our body. May that be done in Cornerstone. Um, When someone were to come to Cornerstone and ask who the preacher is, we we would point to all the men of our church. All the men. They are our preachers. They are our protectors. They are our providers. They are our leaders. They are the one who teach us the Word of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.